Welcome to the Summing Shoe Podcast, where we talk to Summing Shoe's finest about martial arts, training, and life's smaller questions. In this conversation, we talk to Sensei Grant about the fear of being oneself, the liberating power of forgiveness, an oyster Rockefeller. This conversation reminds me of a quote from Bruce Lee, which basically says that ultimately, martial arts means honestly expressing yourself. Which is a very difficult thing to do. So, um, I think this conversation, I, I wish I will start with a confession,、mm-hmm. right? So, when I think of you, right, I somehow I sometimes I feel jealous or envious, right? I was like, because. I feel like you are always like well liked. Like it's either people like like you, really like you, or really love you. You know, like just like in the dojo or people around you. So, so I guess my question is. So that's my confession. And my question is that what's your secret to? What's your secret? <laughs> so,、uh, I was talking with a friend、um, the other day, and something I said, kind of actually in relation to this. I don't, I don't remember how we got on the topic, but it was that in order to have good friends, you have to be a good friend. Mm. Um, and I think I think that's a lot of it is is just being a good friend to people,、um, kind of being open, being、um, being willing to help out, you know.、Um, mm. And I think when people see that, when people see kind of the energy you invest into them, or like a common space like the dojo, that、um, mm. that re- that really kind of gives people a good impression and will kind of have them open up to you and and see in that sort of light.、Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, I can see that because I feel like you are always present, right? Like there, right? When you, when people need, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah,、uh, I mean, yeah.、Uh, I came to the dojo at a, at a pretty important time in my life and just kind of lost myself in the space. And there was, you know, there's always something to do.、Um, there's always some way to help out. It seems, and it was just a. I had a lot more time at the time, and. It just felt like a really good place to invest that time and energy into, and I've kind of reaped the rewards from that tenfold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when when you say going back to have good friends, you need to be a good like be a friend, right? So when did you did you ever arrive to that conclusion, like consciously, or was that just? No, I, like I said, that was a friend who just told me that uh. Uh, earlier this week. I think we were we were talking,、mm. and、um, yeah, I, I don't know. You would you were just being you. <laughs> yeah, I think so.、Uh, it, it wasn't conscious in any way.、Um, just yeah,、uh, I like being around people, and it's you know,、uh, if you're around people and and doing things, invariably these opportunities kind of come up to do something for for people or do something with people, and、um, I think also kind of.、Uh, I mean, I don't know what know if it was a decision or not, but a long time ago, kind of. Felt the idea to be a yes person and not like just agree with things and and go along with them without questioning them. But a lot of people, their reflex when when asked to do something or asked to try something, the reflex is no. Just、mm-hmm. they don't want to try the uncertain.、Um, and I really try to avoid that.、Um, you、uh-huh. know, I want I want to have a good reason to say no. So my default try I try to be yes.、Uh-huh. You know, if if I can do it, I, I want to try. Yeah, yeah. So what 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 caused you to make that decision? Do you remember that moment, that decision? Why why what what caused you to decide that I need to be a yes person? 
Um, hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I wonder if, I can't remember the moment I decided, uh, but I think maybe, maybe the motivation for it was just kind of looking back and realizing I had missed out on some things because I'd said no. Mm. And, um, you know, there's that whole FOMO fear of missing out. Yeah. Uh, and I think maybe that, that kind of got to me and I realized that, huh, I had a chance to, to, to do this. And I said, no. And yeah. so, um, going forward, trying to think of being, you know, yeah. being on board with things. Yeah. I, I can totally relate. It's, uh, Thinking back about college, my undergrad year, right? I, one thing I regret about it is that I did not spend enough time making friends and going out parties and getting drunk and doing all this stuff, right? I was just, I was too I had focused. the opposite problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was too focused on the goal of graduating, right? And then I just like study all the time. I didn't, didn't really connecting with uh, enough people. So that's, yeah. Yeah. Uh I'm a ridiculously huge extrovert. And I think that's also part of that too, is just feeling the need to be around people and being energized about by being around people. Um, it, it puts you in those situations to, to say yes, or to be there when someone needs somebody. Mm, okay. That's good. That's good. All right. So going back to the dojo and I, do you remember your first day a week and something? Here? I do. I do. Um, it's kind of funny actually, because, well, so it was January of 2014. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, there was like one of those polar vortices uh, mm-hmm. that had settled over the city. So it was ridiculously cold out. I remember walking, you know, from my car into the dojo and just freezing my butt off mm-hmm. and walking in. And uh, I want to say like class was already bowing in, like I was late or something, but maybe that's kind of unlike me. So, uh, but I remember kind of like looking around, looking for help. And um, it turns out that I was there a week early. Uh, <laughs> my friend who had told me about the the new beginner class told me that the starting day was a week early, and so I was I showed up there on on a Monday and I was like, oh, and then um, Sensei Rick actually uh, mm-hmm. kind of broke off from class and gave me my first class, and it was a solo class. Oh, and really? so yeah, and so we were on the mats and doing some things, and I had told him about my background having done Shotokan as a kid, so I was we were able to do a little more advanced stuff than you would typically get on the on a first class mm. um but yeah uh, just remember yeah sensei rick on the mats for you know a full hour and a half with a a solo class and it wow. being bitterly cold outside wow wow that's that's awesome I, <laughs> so you thought you were late but you were actually a week early <laughs> exactly exactly who's counting mm-hmm. yeah i think and then i think i think i joined i i started joining like maybe a week after you or something, maybe around the same time. Yeah. yeah, it was, you know, you were still there when we were forming our, our class. Um, yeah. And yeah, we were like, what's this green belt doing with us? <laughs> and, but no, it, it worked out perfectly. And it, it's been great kind of training alongside you. You know, we've kind of, you kind of got a little bit ahead and, and I eventually caught up, but uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's been great having you around kind of, just because we've had a very similar path and, um, it's uh and to have like i kind of went ahead of my class and mm-hmm. so um having you to catch up to i think kind of gave me having a, having a class again mm, yeah nice so over the years training something to uh what's what's your favorite memory in something to oh god that's oof. 
to choose just one uh, is is ridiculously difficult. Um, <sighs> uh, oh God! All right, the one that comes to mind, and I I feel bad for not choosing about three or four other ones. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, at the last training camp that we went to, mm. and um, playing music in the elevators uh, at at training camp. Mm. And basically having having elevator music, live elevator music, uh, going up and down. Uh, I think it was the Saturday night of training oh, wow. camp with, um, you know, a handful of people. Like I think we had a couple of people from um, Little Rock uh, mm-hmm. with us, and it was, I mean, just people's faces when they when they saw the doors open. I'm like, what? And then <laughs> you know, people just ride the elevator with us for five ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's a special memory. Nice. That's, I'm, but there are so many. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so whether, being there for people. Sorry, go ahead. What the other three or four that you are feel bad not telling? Because this podcast is long form, so you can tell me. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, being there for you know very good friends, getting their black belts, um, mm-hmm. and and seeing that. Um, Who was that? Well, so I've been in UK three times uh, mm-hmm. for um, Sensei Noah, Sensei Margaret, and Sensei Simon. Yeah. And kind of being around, a just working on their demos and all that time, but then kind of seeing that culminate in their promotion mm. um, was was very special. And to know that you know I I was a part of that. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was that was very very special. Uh, yeah. Other things, um, hmm. <laughs> winning the chili cook-off. There we go. Oh, what? Another. Winning the chili cook-off. That was a good one. Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> Although there, there may be some who uh, may protest that victory, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, no, no, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you had so many uh, memories of something, something too. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's hard not to. Yeah. So, what... So, yeah. So, go back to the very beginning. What brought you to something too? Sure. Uh, so... Uh, at the end of 2013, I was basically about to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up happening like mm, right May of 25th, 2014. Mm-hmm. And so, um, basically just found myself with, uh, a lot of time and, uh, wanting to kind of find something positive to put that into, you know, yeah. there's the cliche of just the, the bitter alcoholic <laughs> divorcee and, mm-hmm. um, I really wanted to make sure I was dealing with it in a very positive way mm. and um, spending a lot of time getting, just getting more in shape uh, w- was a great way to do that. Um, that's also kind of when I started picking up the upright base. And mm. so between those two things, uh, I went from having a lot of free time to not having a lot of free time. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah. Just, I, I could not, I've said, I don't know how many times it's probably the best decision I've ever made. Oh, nice, nice. And what? Why did you choose something too, though? Uh, so uh, a friend uh, who I'd known. Wow, how long had I known Kim at that point? Mm. Fifteen years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so she first brought her daughter Maggie uh, to the dojo, and I think she was green belt, one brown, something like that. When when I first came to the dojo, and Kim herself was like two green stripes. And um, you know, when I was talking she and I were talking as I was kind of going through the whole divorce thing. And she, she recommended it as a, as a place like I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to the Y, but not really going very often. You know, I'm just getting bored with what I'm doing and 
mm-hmm. I was swimming at the time. And just like the whole process of getting changed to go swimming, then going swimming, then, you know, drying off and, and also having to drive 15 minutes to go work out and everything. It just, and then when you're there, you're just kind of doing this repetitive thing yeah. um, for, you know, half hour, hour, whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That it just, it wasn't working for me. I, I wasn't staying motivated. I wasn't enjoying my workouts. Um, and so Kim suggested, Hey, uh, why don't you try out the dojo? And, you know, having, I'd actually looked at some martial arts, um, kind of, but like six to nine, 12 months before that, yeah. uh, I think there was a judo school. Um, that was one thing I was considering. And then Kim suggested trying out Sung Ming Chu. I'm like, all right. And then I kind of looked into it and saw that Shotokan was one of the, um, foundational styles. I'm like, okay, cool. I, so at least I should have some experience or know something, not realizing you know, quite how heavily we draw on Shotokan. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it it hit very well on things I'd studied in the past. And so I think, well, that and just the people, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think we're spoiled to have such an amazing community. And um, yeah. yeah, that that really helped me stick around. All right. Awesome. Awesome. That's good. That's good. All right. So we're going to leave some issue a little bit. We're going to go go back to your life. Sure. Uh, story a little bit. So just bounce around. Yeah, it's going to be a bounce around. So it's not going to be linear. It's going to be a take on you know detours, everything. So. Sure. What's your favorite like childhood memory? Uh, um, hmm. I actually found pictures of this recently, which is great. So um, my dad passed back in October. Wait, what? And Oh yeah. My dad passed away in October. Um, he'd been in pretty poor shape for a while. And, um, in a lot of ways it was just a mercy, uh, that, yeah, he, he just had zero quality of life left. And, um, I I'm, it's horrible not having him around, but Mm. I'm glad he's not suffering anymore. Mm. Uh, but so recently I was going through his condo and found some old pictures. And among those pictures, I found, a handful of pictures from this thing. So uh, I have an aunt and uncle up who live outside of Green Bay in Wisconsin. Hmm. And they have, uh, they're more or less surrounded by farms. They have a decent amount of land, but they don't, they don't farm on it. Hmm. Um, And I remember when I was a kid, I probably couldn't have been six, seven years old, something like that. Um, That my aunt comes to me. It's like, we found this map and you know, it was a map of basically that of their yard. And there was, you know, it was a treasure map. Huh. And so, yeah. And so they're kind of leading me through and we're, we're trying to figure out the treasure map and go in places and end up um, finding where, you know, the X is mm-hmm. and end up digging. And there's, they had dug this little like small plastic treasure chest full of like costume jewelry and such um, huh. for me. And just like, huh that was such an amazing little thing to do for, for a kid. And, uh, I will, I will always remember it. I'm kind of sad. I don't have, have it anymore. Um, I, but I did keep it for the longest time. Uh, and yeah, I think that's, I mean, yeah, that when you, you know, favorite childhood memory, that's the one that springs to mind. So what did you do with the treasury after you found it? Like once your trial? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so like I remember there were like some like clip on costume earrings that one of my stuffed animals would often wear. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but yeah, no, it was just this 
and like there may have even been like some like semi-precious stones in there my grandfather was our grandparents i should say on my mother's side were mm-hmm. rock hounds so they would go out and like find like semi-precious stones and polish them and cut them and things like that and or go to um like conventions or, or trade shows that sort of thing and and buy things my grandfather would often make um like mobile mobiles mobiles like mm-hmm. you know where they kind of out of like slices of agate and i have one somewhere that i've been meaning to to hang mm-hmm. um but yeah um so uh yeah just there were just kind of some pretty things in there and just didn't really do anything with it because there really wasn't anything to be done with it but i just remember remember being around and saving it and just kind of like just this fantastic memory from it yeah how how did you feel when you found a treasure and i I mean, it's it's treasure. I was elated, <laughs> and I mean, it was I was young enough to believe the story that they were telling me. So it's like, oh, someone must. This is treasure. Someone must have buried this here. Uh, I mean, it, did you I think you were, you were you were did you think you were, oh I'm rich? <laughs> uh, you know, maybe not, <laughs> wow. I, and I don't know why. Okay. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. but still, yeah. just the whole finding of the treasure was just. A wonderful, wonderful memory. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe you don't think anything about money because you don't. Maybe you don't need it, or maybe, maybe it's not your goal. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, I, I wasn't spending a whole lot. I didn't. Have, I didn't have any bills to pay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So staying your childhood a little bit, now, do you, is that yeah. was there uh, any uh, significant moment in your childhood growing up? So, um, okay, it's kind of borderline not quite childhood anymore. Uh, <laughs> And so, uh, really, I would say kind of pivotal moment was when my family moved from Chicago down here to Atlanta. Mm. Um, and so I was like 13, so childish. Yeah. Um, and it was 91, so it was just before. Like, I think they just announced that the Olympics were coming to Atlanta, mm. and we were um, out in East Cobb. And you know, I really identified with Chicago, um, you know, that, you know, you have your sports teams there, you have family, you have, you have everything. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves, you know, what are the thousand miles or so yeah. uh, between Chicago and Atlanta and 14 hour drive and find myself in this city that I've never been to before. And um, yeah, but, it, and at first I remember being really, not exactly on board with it you know yeah. I, w- I felt like i was leaving a lot of things behind and that just i i really like you know i like the city i like being where we were I, you know yeah. going into the city and all the culture and then wind up in east cobb and we didn't whereas in chicago we'd actually go to the city with some frequency my grandparents lived there um like every christmas eve my dad would bring my brother and i down to the city and we'd do some christmas shopping that sort of thing mm-hmm. um but I really didn't remember coming down into Atlanta much at all um, until basically until I was start, uh, almost till I was going to tech. Oh yeah. So um, kind of living out in the suburbs and not having access to the city or not you know having any experience with the city, mm-hmm. it was it was it wasn't as appealing. Gotcha. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of a fresh start and um, you know new friends, new. <laughs> new history or kind of an erasing erasing history i was i was bullied a fair amount as a kid and um, i'm sorry bullied oh really yeah and uh to kind of be able to escape that 
in some ways was you know i didn't i had a a fresh start and no one no one knew to bully me <laughs> so um yeah when i came here that was right before the i started high school so yeah. i had like six weeks in eighth grade yeah. um before and so i had a chance to make some friends and but i didn't have that whole legacy of being bullied and so it was you, it, in that way it was great yeah it's a new beginning mm-hmm. yeah so i guess talking about bullying i what 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 happened um so i mean it was it went on and off you know more when i was younger i yeah. think by the time i was older a i was bigger so kids knew <laughs> to do quite so much to me um but it it still happened yeah um but just it wasn't as frequent and it wasn't always quite as physical like i remember what it was sixth or seventh grade i had a science fair project yeah. pretty good science fair project if i if i do say so myself and it was what was it It was like something to do with like growing plants in different media or was that the viscosity one mm. anyway um science fair project i was very proud of and uh when it came time to do the judging i couldn't find my report and oh. that was part of what they were judging us on Mm-hmm. It turns out someone had stolen my report and hid it in, hid it, hidden it in a locker mm-hmm. so that it wasn't there when came around time for judging. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was, uh, I didn't get an award until, oh, wow. yeah. But then when we found my report and someone was able to, here you go, then they rejudged me and I did. I had like one of the top 10 or whatever projects, but it was that kind of bullying that, mm-hmm. um, you know, not always physical. Got you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes these non-physical bully could be even worse than physical bully, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, I, physical, I kind of... just, if physically you hurt physically, you heal very pretty fast. But mental, mm-hmm. this emotional uh, bully, you know, it can't last long time, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, there is a certain mental aspect to physical bullying as well, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, that like the more psychological or things like that that can really kind of get under someone's skin. That mm. you know, I think about like the cyberbullying and the, what kids have to deal with these days with social yeah. media and everything. It's mm. very glad I grew up when I did. So, so well, since you are you are working with kids, like teaching kids uh, karate in the dojo a lot. So, mm-hmm. what would you? I guess what would you? Giving advice to like kids if they have been bullied? What would you? I, I guess I'm not sure how would you say to Nana to going through that I'm not going through yeah oh um hmm. I mean I think honestly our kids program does a pretty good job of of addressing some of those sorts of things so you know it's being aware and and you know basically not making yourself a target as part of it um yeah. and I think also kind of building kids self-confidence mm. uh so that you know I think bullies tend to find the people who are weak or who, who can be bullied more easily. Mm-hmm. And um, I think kind of building a self-confidence through like a martial arts practice uh, yeah. can, can make oneself less of a target. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you don't want to be a tattletale either. Um, okay. <laughs> sometimes that just makes it worse, right? What's that? Uh, like just always telling on the people who are bullying you that that oh. doesn't necessarily lead to the... Uh, Got you, yeah. So how do you make yourself less a target? Um, again, I think self-confidence is part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of, 
you know, uh, we think we talk about like our five A's of self-defense and awareness and things like that. You know, you don't want to have your phones, your, your face stuck in a phone all the time, or you want to, you want to be aware of your surroundings. Mm-hmm. And so in those cases, you're making yourself less of a target to potential, potential, you know, violence or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think as a kid, you can kind of do the same thing just by, you know, looking up rather than looking down and showing people that you're not going to be so easily intimidated or whatever. Mm. Um, those sorts of characteristics, uh, I think make it the bull- bullies are going to bully, but yeah. you can make yourself less of a target, I think. Yeah. Okay. So one more question about that is that when, sure. when you're going through net time, how did you deal with it? <laughs> so that's about when I started, uh, taking Shotokan. Uh-huh. Um, and I think, you know, the bullying didn't stop immediately, but it, it definitely slowed down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that really kind of taught me some self-control too, because, you know, learning how to actually punch and kick and everything and knowing that if someone really were to, to, to fight that, um, I could actually do some damage. And so okay. learning to try and avoid the fights or, um, yeah, again, kind of being less of a target. Yeah. Uh, gotcha. All right. Now moving forward a little bit. Now, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? Honestly, um, probably my dad. Mm. Um, so my dad was in sales, and so uh, you know he would be traveling two, three, four times or days a week pretty regularly. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, I was very much raised by my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he'd be around for the weekends usually. Uh, but, um, because of that, like, because I was more or less raised by my mother, she's the one I historically have kind of always given some credit to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I think in retrospect, I, I really should thank my dad for, you know, the reason he wasn't there was because he was working to earn a living for all of us. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's, he did a lot for us and I don't know that I necessarily recognized quite how much that was until later. Mm. And like, you know, he and I, there are a lot of things that I really enjoy or that I, f- I feel are part of me that I get from him. So like he was a chemist <laughs> and my bachelor's degree is in chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a bartender uh, and yeah, it's certainly one of my hobbies. In fact, <laughs> um, not only was he, he a bartender, so what, in the late 60s, mm-hmm. he worked at a, at a bar called the Old, Old Town Ale House in Chicago. And mm-hmm. uh, Old Town Ale House, it's still there, is right across the street from Second City. Are you familiar with what, what that is? He's in a Second City in a comedy, right? Yeah, so it's like one of the premier like improv comedy troops in the, in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but this was late, the late sixties. And so, um, the, the actors, the comedians who were there, uh, were like Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi and Bill Murray and, um, Old Town Ale House was one of the bars that when all the other bars would close down, they would stay open so that all the, all the service people from those bars had some place that they could go. Mm -hmm. And so being right across the street from second city, you know, once they were done with their, their shows for the night, they wanted a place to go drink. So they would run across the street. Mm-hmm. And so like the regulars my dad had are people like Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, um, oh, wow. as well as like other things like uh, John Prine, the musician who just died last year from COVID. 
um, but well-known folk artist uh, was one of his regulars. So um, yeah, uh, but yeah, bartending definitely. I think I got from my dad. <laughs> That's awesome. If you can think about your dad, what's the one thing that he did that uh, I guess show he loves you or somehow connected to you in a way? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Because、uh, you you mentioned that he's away on time, so I I can imagine it might be hard for him to stay like very connected to you, right? So yeah, and it was.、Um, You know, it. There, I wouldn't say our relationship was strained. We we were fine with each other and everything. We just didn't have quite the bond that I did with my mother. Yeah.、Um, but things like just like going to, and playing catch, or you know, things like that that he and I would do together.、Um, and then、uh, as we got <clears throat> as I got older,、um, he and I would often go see、um, when the Chicago Cubs would come to town. We'd go see a baseball game,、mm-hmm. uh, and so things like that where. You know, mutual interest, something that we both really liked and enjoyed, and go do that together. And that was a, a good chance to kind of check in and reconnect and everything, and go do something、mm-hmm. together that we both enjoy. Nice, nice, awesome. What was the one thing that you were afraid of doing, but you did it anyway? Ah,、uh, that's a big question. Yeah, <laughs> and um, it's actually something I'm kind of. In the process of doing right now,、mm-hmm. and that is,、um, I'm coming out as trans and transitioning to living as a woman,、mm. and that has terrified me as pretty much l- as long as I have been alive, or at least, well, the possibility of that. Or w- once I even knew that was a possibility,、mm-hmm. um, it was kind of one of those things. It's like. I think that might be me, but、mm. I'm kind of afraid to find out because that looks really scary and difficult.、Mm. And、um, so I, I didn't come up. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. What's What's the most What's the most scary part about it? And what do you, I guess, fearful of most? Um. I mean, there's the whole idea that basically your your idea of self, who you are,、mm-hmm. has to change fundamentally,、mm-hmm. um, and you know, you almost have to kind of figure out who you are again.、Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's scary, but、um, you know, in the actual true sense of like danger,、mm-hmm. um, just violence against trans women is、mm-hmm. is a huge problem. Like, trans、mm-hmm. people are. Assaulted at like four times the rate of cis or non-trans non-trans people.、Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know the numbers aren't so high, but that's because it's such a small portion of the population. But just recognizing that, you know, going from basically being a a cis white male where I feel safe and secure pretty much in all situations to、yeah. a trans woman who. Is you know you look at all these different bills you know first there were the bathroom bills and now there's the whole things about、um, like tra- young trans athletes and such,、mm-hmm. um, and getting to a point where I'm at danger just for being who I am,、mm. or in da- you know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. and frankly, like you know if it's just physical violence, I feel like I've prepared myself pretty well to deal with that.、Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's always the the question mark, you know, is somebody armed? Do they have, you know, am I instead of dealing with one person, am I dealing with two or three?
Mm. Um, and kind of understanding the danger of those situations. Um, that's really scary. And also knowing just knowing who I am um, and kind of being in some of these spaces where there are likely to be other trans people mm. and say they're having to deal with, you know, harassment, assault, whatever. I think I know myself well enough to know that I would have a hard time not getting involved. And mm-hmm. then that I'm taking that, that risk on for myself as well. And, and again, who knows what, what I'm necessarily stepping into, mm. but kind of knowing I'm more capable than most um, in kind of dealing with these situations, but also feeling kind of the need to, to protect people. Um, yeah particularly people who can't necessarily protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry about kind of getting into some of those situations where I could be in physical, if not lethal danger. Yeah. 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 Wow. How, how, I guess, how are you preparing yourself for those dangers right now? Well, I mean, the training at the dojo is a big part of that and learning how to, how to defend myself. But then, um, I only made this decision to transition like last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still very fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to rewind a little bit. So um, I didn't come out to everybody, but I came out to a good number of people last fall as non-binary. So, and that was basically just saying, Hey, I'm having some weird gender questions, whatever. I'm not quite sure all what this means. It's something I kind of need to explore. And um, this is kind of my way of telling y'all that that's something I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of exploration led to led me to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really strange. Kind of once part of that exploration was realizing that essentially I was letting fear control me. Mm-hmm. That it, it wasn't necessarily that I really wanted to re- stay male. Mm-hmm. It was just that I was afraid to really become myself. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> once, once I realized, realized that it was fear that I was dealing with, mm-hmm. it made it a little easier to kind of overcome it. You mean you know? fear of like, instead of, you know, instead of being, uh, just be a non-bar- non-binary, you're saying the fear of uh, admitting yourself uh, trans is, uh, is the fear of being yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are so many different things associated with that. And, you know, am I doing the right thing? You know, yeah. there's the whole violence issue. There's the, you know, who am I going to be? Am I going to lose a whole bunch of friends? Yeah. Um, you know, there are so many things associated with that kind of life change mm-hmm. and that it's just incredibly intimidating. Um, yeah. and, and just particularly coming from, you know, the place of ultimate privilege, you know, mm-hmm. being a cis straight white male, um, and realizing that to kind of be my authentic self, there's a lot I had to give up there uh, and, and hope that um, my life is still going to be better for having made that decision. Mm. Um, but <clears throat> like I said, it's, it's been all the week yeah. and uh, amazingly, I, I know I've made the right decision. Mm. Uh, you know. how, how, how did you make, how did you make a decision? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, there was a good week or so beforehand where Mm -hmm. it was something I just could not stop thinking about that I've, 
I kind of felt more and more that male or non-binary it wasn't right and that was a very scary prospect and so Mm -hmm. there was this am i am i or am i not am i or am i not what if i am and it's if you can't say with confidence i am this and particularly with something as you know central to who you are as your as your gender yeah it's it's a hard thought to escape (laughs) and so after about a week of that uh i I had a called a friend and um, who's non-binary and they came over and we just talked through things. It was just someone to kind of all the ideas that were running through my head at a mile a minute and a chance to kind of <clears throat> to voice them, to have someone who could relate to kind of what I was going through. Uh, and this friend is, <laughs> we have like very in-depth discussions and debates and such uh, with some frequency and so they were very good about kind of calling me out on, on you know, my own issues and things that weren't necessarily true. And in doing so, that was kind of where I realized it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not afraid. I'm not. I'm not not doing this because I'm. I'm. I still identify with my male side. Uh, the reason I'm not doing this is because I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And um, that was when I realized that it was just fear keeping me from being myself. And the other part of it was like, they really, they did a very good job of kind of encouraging me to kind of believe in myself Mm -hmm. Um, that, you know, I have an amazing group of friends who are all very supportive and I know would have my back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, they also said, you know, when when I kind of find myself in these situations that I tend to thrive Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, I really didn't have anything to be afraid of and that this would actually be something really good for me. And I would just kind of jump off from there and that would go really well. And, and to that point, um, like I said, it's been all of a week and I've already, I already have some things underway that I think are really meaningful to me. Um, I'm (laughs) already trying to start a new nonprofit to help teach self-defense to trans women. Oh, really? Um, Awesome. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know it's funny how it's funny how before before deciding to transition, I had just kind of mm-hmm. come to a point where I was taking life as it came to me, mm-hmm. and you know part of I kind of justified that in my head is that I was kind of living in the moment and just trying you know trying not to be too attached to things. Yeah, but. In retrospect, I think what it was was that it's hard to it's hard to dream of things for a person you don't want to be. Mm. And once I had who I wanted to be a little more secure, then I felt a little more free to kind of dream of a future. Uh, hmm. So you mean like when you before you transition, you were always like taking things as it comes to you. What do you mean by that? Like what? Do you just, have an example night? Um, I just, I didn't really have much of a, a long-term plan. Like I would have goals, like getting my black belt was a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like a, a five-year plan, like I want to be living here and doing this sort of job or whatever. Mm. You know, at, that felt, I don't know. I just, yeah. I didn't have that drive to, to, to do that the way that a lot of people do. Yeah. Uh, and now that I kind of, 
I'm happy with who I am. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I, I've, I'm finding things that I can kind of think of a future and think of where yeah. I want to be in a few years and things so that what, I want to do. What's the vision of your future? Um, so, I mean, this this nonprofit, I think, yeah, could could very well be a very big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's such a, a huge issue for this community, mm-hmm. and to to be able to address it in some way. And you know, the the idea also has plenty of room for growth. So, mm-hmm. the 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 nugget of the idea is to do like a monthly, a free monthly self defense class for trans women. Mm-hmm. Um, but then growing it to say. All right, maybe it's not just trans women. Maybe it's women in general or uh, queer women or whatever. And then maybe it's not just self-defense, but then also say um, connecting people to resources for those who have survived assault or for those who are in abusive situations and helping them get out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, issues that this group um, faces on a daily basis and doesn't necessarily has trouble finding help in, adre- in, in dealing with those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so when I was thinking about this, my biggest limitation was like a curriculum, you know, a a self-defense curriculum is totally different than a martial arts curriculum because you need to teach things that are, are quickly learned and absorbed something that doesn't take, you know, months, if not years of like refining a skill to make it effective. Like, uh, I think like, um, bent wrist, Mm Kodagesh, how, how long it takes someone doing that to actually get to a point where they can reliably do it to somebody. Yeah. That, that's not a self-defense technique. Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't teach that to somebody in a two hour class and expect them to be able to use it effectively. Yeah. And so um, devising a curriculum and it's not all, all physical either. It's also some of these like situational awareness yeah. and things like that, where, you know, if, if you're getting to a point where you're actually having to interact with somebody and, and try and hurt them, mm-hmm. um, I won't say you necessarily, necessarily failed in your self-defense, but that should be the last resort. Yeah. Um, it's getting out of that situation first is really what, what needs to be taught. Yeah. And so kind of working and building a curriculum around that, those sorts of things. Mm. And so, um, yeah, in the last week, I've already kind of reached out to some people uh, to help kind of get some help developing something along those lines. Because, you know, I've learned some. Um, I've learned, you know, things from classes at training camp. Uh, but, and then like, uh, what, when Sensei Jan was in here, or was at the, the dojo a few weeks ago, um, and was talking about work she had done with Master Mary on like women's self-defense. And so she's someone I have in mind uh, to speak with and just trying to really put something together that I think could could be very helpful to a group that really could use some help. But then once that's developed, um, that could also be, you know, used in other places. So mm-hmm. uh, like I said, my biggest limitation was a lack of curriculum. And I suspect there are other you know, experienced martial artists around the country who would love to do something about this issue, but just don't have a good starting point. Yeah. And so to be able to provide a way to, um, you know, this is something you want to help out with. Here's your starting point. Let's talk and make sure that we're all on the same page and to be able to kind of bring up that sort of thing for another group, mm. uh, you know, in say in another city and be able to kind of spread this so that this group can get the help that they need. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this reminds me of like, my conversation with uh, Sensei uh, Mariana. She talked about like, how she ended up in the 80s. She tried to start like, self-defense of women. Yeah. She, she's one of the people I'm actually speaking with and she's uh, on board to help with. So yeah, in fact, it was your podcast that I knew about that from. So thank you. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Good, good. Awesome. Just quick question on that. Is, uh, is, uh, can you just uh, 
adapt that women's self-defense to trans or is it going to be some modification going to be different it's not going to be exactly the same i i don't think it's going to be exactly the same but i think there are going to be a lot of similarities but okay. no I, I do think there are going to be a few differences um mm. trans women have different things they need to protect <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah there is certainly that aspect of it that's gotcha, gotcha. um but no I, I do think also just because they're victims at such higher rates mm. uh i think providing a safe space where they feel comfortable is yeah. is huge and um yeah i think going going back to we talked about earlier about bullying right just make yourself uh make yourself less a target right and then be confident right so i think this your class gonna do that as well and also i think you are i i feel like your what you try to do is more it's more than just self-defense right it's building right. community right community yeah so exactly and yeah for a community that doesn't really have too many places for a community you know what i mean like yeah yeah so going back to the trans women i guess uh because i'm for myself i'm very ignorant of the topic myself so i guess so my question is that what does being a trans woman mean Ooh, that's a big question um yeah. and it's really hard to put into words it's there is so much of that's just kind of a feeling mm-hmm. um it's really how you interact with the world uh, and how the world interacts with you. Mm. It's kind of have, having some of those, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to say that like men can't be nurturing and, or caring or whatever, but these are still characteristics that we often associate with women mm. and feeling very driven in kind of those directions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. There's a lot to it, but it, 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 it is just kind of a feeling. And mm-hmm. by the way, since I have this opportunity, I just want to say, all right, so part of my transition, uh, changing my name um, and mm-hmm. going with uh, Renee, mm-hmm. uh, which has some personal, uh, some personal reasons as well. So since I have the, <laughs> the soapbox here, um, so when, uh, when I was born, um, okay. my parents had almost chosen the male version of Renee, so just R-E-N-E mm-hmm. uh, for my name. Uh, I was, I'm told, I was conceived in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of as uh, a nod to that, they had they thought about naming me like a French name, ah. uh, but ended up going with Grant. Mm-hmm. But then when it came time to choose a female name, mm-hmm. um, and knowing that little bit about my history, I'm thinking, huh, if I just add an E, then that works, and that's basically as close as I can probably ever get to my parents giving me a new name. Oh, nice. But, but then the other part of that, just kind of the icing on that cake. Um, so like I said, it's a French name. And if you translate it, it means reborn, which seems very kind of perfect for what I'm going through. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that is perfect. Yeah. Nice, nice. Oh, and I'm going to break the fourth wall here. If you're listening to this, don't post comments on Facebook or whatever about this this big reveal. Let other people find out either, well, let people find out their own way. <laughs> yeah how, how did you i mean when did you i guess have you known your whole life or would you and some some like you say last october or something that you realized that so like i've known my whole life that i wasn't quite the the normal 
guy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there there was always these kind of like interests in things that were not stereotypically male or, you know, mm-hmm. and you quickly learn to kind of shut those things down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, male maleness is is very policed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's policed by ourselves or by society, our community, whatever, you know, guys are not allowed to kind of veer too much away from what is considered guy without kind of drawing attention to themselves. And like, all right, well, you're not one of us now. Mm-hmm. And so that being a very kind of scary place to inhabit, particularly when you're not even sure that you are something different, you know, if, yeah. so it's very hard to kind of experiment along those lines, but recognizing that, you know, there were these things about me that I just wasn't quite, didn't quite fit, but never really feeling able to experiment or really kind of figure that part of myself out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, I would, the main way I would experiment with that, frankly, was cross-dressing. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the kind of thing where, you know, I would do it once and then not for, you know, several months to a year and then maybe pick it up again and go for a, a week or so. And mm-hmm. Not like, not like every day or anything, but like, you know, and then, and then again, kind of out of shame or whatever, put it away for, for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, COVID really kind of gave me the ability to experiment, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not getting changed in front of people every <laughs> three, four, five times every week. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and you know, at home alone a lot, whole lot more, mm-hmm. uh, it just kind of, it was a weird opportunity that I found myself in and <clears throat> started experimenting again. And the experiments just kind of went a little further and a little deeper and a little further and a little deeper until I realized it's like, <sighs> all right, this is actually kind of part of who I am and I need to figure this out. Mm. And so um, that was kind of when I came out as non-binary was, mm. all right, I, there's something going on here I need to understand. And I just need to kind of, and part of it was also just, there's only so much you can figure out on your own that interacting with other people um, is kind of critical too. Mm-hmm. And for that to happen, I needed people to understand kind of where I was coming from what, and what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so um, it really kind of got to a point where it's like, I have to be somewhat public about this mm-hmm. and, and kind of confront my fears. Mm-hmm. And that was like a really, it was a good way to kind of ease into this and, and really kind of figure out what it meant to me and for me. Mm-hmm. And as that went on, and particularly kind of saying about the two, three weeks before I decided to, to come out and transition, it was, it was very clear that this, this is a bigger part of me than I had previously realized. And I need to, I need to honor this. I need to be myself. Yeah. 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 So how do you, you talking about like exploring by cross-dressing, how do you, how did you feel when you like, so normally every day you were, you know, normally wearing a guy's clothes, but when you did the cross-dressing, how did you feel when you put on women's clothes? Um, that's a good question. Um, and that's for the, so I would say the last time I did before kind of this whole trouble before coming out as non-binary was probably like two or three years. Uh-huh. So um, thinking, it's hard to think back to those feelings. I think it was, hmm. I would say, I think 
I felt like I was kind of accessing some part of myself mm-hmm. that didn't have a chance to kind of express itself very often. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was all of myself that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and that really kind of the way I had been living was kind of a, just a, an act or a costume in some, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And you get so used to being in that, in that costume that it doesn't even feel like a costume anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think there was this kind of sense of sense of self mm-hmm. and, and correctness that, um, that shown through, but at the same time, there. Oh, shame you know we're yeah. we're raised in community or community society says this isn't something that you're supposed to do as a guy and that mm-hmm. gets very ingrained mm-hmm. especially over the course of 40 something years mm-hmm. and so um yeah there was certainly an aspect of that as well oh ah, okay yeah that, yeah that, that definitely makes sense yeah so how do you feel now that you finally that you had came come out uh to the public i guess now, how do you feel now uh probably more myself than i ever have um Mm -hmm. freer like i feel like a weight's been lifted i could Mm -hmm. i could give you all sorts of cliches or or whatever you know like i've said like i feel like i'm i've been holding my breath for 43 years and i finally can can breathe now Mm -hmm. um but like also like friends who i've come out to say like it have told me how remarkable like they can just see how much happier i am and Mm -hmm. it's not like i was a you know a sad sack beforehand um but just seeing kind of the, the marked change just visibly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's nice to be able to, to be oneself and not have that burden of hiding who you are. Yeah. Or, or, and frankly, living through a filter. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have been very careful about what I say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I almost, I almost think about everything I say before I say it. And part of that was, I don't want to say anything that might let people on to this part about myself that I don't want anyone knowing about. Mm-hmm. And so there was always kind of that, that second's pause just to make sure that what I'm about to say is, is safe. Mm-hmm. And I th- that's a, a behavior I've learned over decades yeah. and um, learning to kind of let go of that. And when I can um, and just kind of, trust trust in myself and who i am mm-hmm. uh is very freeing mm-hmm. that's good that's good fine i think as i mentioned early before and i almost like finding more of yourself a little bit yeah oh yeah, yeah. no definitely and I, I felt like a complete person beforehand and mm-hmm. not realizing how much of myself i had kind of cut off for lack of a better term mm, gotcha that's awesome. So what's the most surprising thing about transitioning that you have found? <laughs> surprising. Uh, that's hard because mm. one one of the ways I've kind of dealt with this over the years is just reading a lot and uh, trying to understand what this experience is like from other people's perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think there were a ton of surprises, but I'm sure there were some. I need to think about it for a second. Yeah. Um, because there have definitely been a a handful or just kind of, yeah, there have been some, some very interesting experiences that I never would have expected, but what's the the most interesting experience? Um, 
that's a really good question. Uh, because there, there have been a lot. And really, it's, I think, just generally how different it is interacting with the world through interacting with the world through kind of a, a female persona versus a male persona and the way yeah. the way people treat you and the way that you know you're expected to act and you know all yeah. of that is it's been incredibly illuminating you know to to have both those experiences because not a whole lot of people do have that opportunity yeah um and it's it's eye-opening you know coming to a point now where I'm going to be living the rest of my life as a woman. But before that, it was like, wow, I really, you, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to even have an inkling of those experiences until you kind of live them. Um, Mm. And not to say, you know, I'm coming at this at 43, living as a male for 43 years. Uh, There are a whole lot of experiences that, I will never have that women do. And mm-hmm. a lot of those are not necessarily positive. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, I don't want to diminish, diminish or undermine those things too. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, because of who I am and who I've been, I have a very different lived experience mm-hmm. than, than those who are, than cis women, those who are, who were born and yeah. assigned female at birth. And yeah. I don't mean to, I don't mean to, suggest that that's that's trivial in any way mm-hmm. yeah okay all right all right i think we're gonna uh can i say that. can i say one more thing on that topic yeah, go ahead so um i going back to this whole idea of, of violence against trans women yeah. um it's something that like i said it, it means a lot to me mm-hmm. and i think at the root of a lot of that is simply the fact that a lot of people don't know anyone who's trans who yeah. don't have that don't have that experience and so that makes it very easy to frankly not see trans people as people mm-hmm. um and so something i'm trying to do in my transition is is to be open and honest mm-hmm. and um kind of set that i don't say expectation but set that norm that to be a little more open with with who we are and with the hope that as people kind of get to know trans people better and, and that what that experience is like, that it kind of diminishes that effect of, of not really seeing trans people as people. Yeah. Uh, and I think with that, that kind of undercuts at least some of what motivates a lot of this violence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, totally. Yeah. A lot when people see something they don't understand or they never seen before and they treat it as others, that way it's easier for them to, you know, uh, commit violence against those yeah exactly so yeah so so ask any questions you want um you know (laughs) all right that's good what does it mean that you're gonna leave as a woman for from now on um uh i mean i can guess i haven't been there yet um (laughs) but just you know presenting a a female a female image to to the world Mm -hmm. and you know that's one of the really interesting things about gender is because it's so internal mm-hmm. um that we need some we need trans people need some way to communicate their gender to people so that the world knows how how to expect this person to interact with them and how to interact with it with that person mm-hmm. uh for the longest time frankly i found the whole pronoun thing 
kind of annoying. You know, it felt like an imposition. What's not that I would not that I would ever like not. Re- so like with so non-binary people will often ask to have you know they them for their pronouns. So refer oh, to me not not as he or she, but as they or something like that. I see. I see. And for me, that always felt again. I would never not honor that request, mm-hmm. but it still felt like an imposition. And mm-hmm. to the point where when I was non-binary, I told people use whatever pronouns you like. Um, because a, I kind of identified with he, she, them, all of them, mm-hmm. but also because I didn't want to, I didn't want to ask people to do anything different. Gotcha. I didn't want to impose that requirement or request on them. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to, you know, as long as someone was being respectful, I didn't care what they called me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it was kind of now that I've kind of gotten a little further along this journey that I've realized it's our pronouns and frankly, our presentation are pretty much the two ways we have of telling the world um, what our gender identity is. Mm -hmm. And um, once I realized that it's like, okay, I, I get pronouns now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I get that, you know, we have a very limited language and this is one of the handful of ways you can tell me what you're trying to tell me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, particularly in like online spaces where you're not even seeing like a person's physical presentation, all you have is like a name, which unless they've changed it to be something, you know, more in line with whatever gender they are, whether that's a gender gender neutral name or, you know, uh, changing it to that of another, of another gender. Mm -hmm. Um, Pronouns really were the, uh, were and are the one way we have to tell people, Hey, this is, this is how you should interact with me. Mm. Um, Or, or this is what you should expect of me Mm -hmm. uh, as far as like norms and uh, associated with gender and such. Mm. And so, um, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting realization. Mm. Okay, nice. I, I do have a question, a curious question yeah. about makeup. So, do you do you like wearing makeup? Um, yeah, I do. <laughs> to be totally but, honest, and the reason I ask it is because as a guy, I always like. I mean, you were a guy too. I mean, so I mean, I, I always feel like makeup is a lot of work, right? It, so, it can be. So is it? So I guess you, since you enjoy wearing it, you don't see it as work, I guess. Right? Yeah, not exactly. I mean, not really. It's not work. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I had actually gotten my start more with like theater makeup, and so like costuming and, th- and things like that, like things like for Dragon Con and such. Yeah. Um, and so I had some experience before I really started to do anything with makeup, yeah. and then um, as <clears throat> as I got into more my gender side of things mm-hmm. uh it really became yeah in some ways it was it was i was developing i was almost developing a, a second language in some mm-hmm. ways you know and you know it was it was fun to see to try things and see if you could get them to work out and mm-hmm. when you're learning they t- you typically don't mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um and it, it can look pretty bad but mm-hmm. as you as you practice and get better mm-hmm. um you know i feel i feel good when i can uh I can count like, all right, I put this on, I put this on, I put this on, Yeah, put seven different things on mm-hmm. and someone who would just see a picture might be able to tell that there's like one or two, like this being able to be subtle mm-hmm. and to pull that off. Um, I always felt like, all right, I did a good job with that. If, if it's not totally clear that I'm, you know, wearing all these different products I or see. whatever. I see. Another, I guess, so it's not something, a stupid question is, is that, do you, do you feel like it's, do you feel like you have to wear makeup as a trans woman? Um, 
I don't think all trans women have to. Yeah. Um, I think in a lot of cases I need to. Uh, yeah. Simply just because my Me? physical self is so big and frankly male yeah. that I I can't be subtle. If okay. I want people to to read me as female, mm-hmm. um, I kind of need to hit them over the head with it. Uh-huh. And gotcha, gotcha. And makeup and and presentation is a big part of that. Ah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Last question regarding this is like, when what's the it's going forward like. I'm not. What's the biggest challenge of transitioning, like for you personally, like right now, either right now or maybe something you foresee in the future? No. Yeah. Um, hmm. There, there's a ton. Um, and to to name a biggest challenge, um, I think really. Now that I'm essentially inhabiting this space full time, or will be fairly soon, yeah. is to engage with it authentically and kind of dig below the surface mm-hmm. and really kind of get to understand this part of me in, in, in a less superficial way. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it isn't about just you know clothes and makeup or whatever. You know, it's it's not just how you physically present. It's it's also you know, who you are and how you interact with the world and, you know, what, what you do and to really look below the surface and understand that who I am is so much more than just how I present Mm -hmm. and how that, how that lines up with, with this identity and, um, and just living more authentically. Um, not, and okay, to that point, then I guess honestly, the biggest challenge is not letting fear control me anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And what's the what's the what's the thing that you like most about being a woman? <laughs> um, it's a little early to, early to say, uh, yeah. but right. I would say like through my time as non-binary and what I would present more female and such, but not even presenting more female, but uh the way hmm. I would say just kind of the the way some of my friendships have evolved mm-hmm. um and that they I have a lot of friendships with women and um that frankly were not very stereotypically male you know they mm. I felt confided in a lot of ways and that I was kind of like accepted in a way that a lot of guys typically aren't mm-hmm. um, and feeling feeling trusted in that way by mm-hmm. a number of women who I respect tremendously that they they kind of opened the door for me in that way and, and trusted me mm-hmm. in those kind of spaces and ways was was really very meaningful yeah I see. That's good. That's good. All right. Last stupid question. So, which locker room are you going to use in the dojo in the future? That's uh, that's not a question for me to decide. I see. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, no, I I just want people to be comfortable yeah, and, yeah. and or minimize the disruption. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's not for me to decide. 
I see. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I was like, oh no, we're gonna miss Grant from uh, <laughs> knowing our male's locker room. If yeah. Well, I I don't see myself staying in the male in the men's locker room for very long. Um, gotcha. okay. But but beyond that, you know, whether it's changing at home or whatever, yeah, that that's not for me to decide. But okay. yeah, it's. As I'll I, be honest. As, uh, as I said, that was a stupid question. So <laughs> all right, that's all right. Yeah. All right, so actually, I caught it. Should do be question, you know. <laughs> uh. All right. So, <laughs> okay, let's move on to next question. Um, what's the saddest moment in your life? Uh, I don't have to think about this one very long at all. Mm -hmm. Um, it was the night of december 23rd 2013. Mm. um so the week beforehand uh, i have called my week from hell it started with taking a a dog i've been fostering uh to be put down for cancer mm -hmm. uh there was things with my ex-wife uh, and basically the disintegration of my marriage mm -hmm. and there were there were a number of events kind of along those lines that uh made it difficult and then it kind of culminated with my house being broken into with everything else that had gone on mm. um in that preceding week um and then just kind of have that happen and so yeah waking up basically christmas eve morning uh, and like what do i do but no coming home that night to a house that had been broken into and then everything else that had kind of preceded it yeah um yeah is that everything everything crossing down on you right very much so very much so in fact, uh, a neighbor told me like a day or two afterwards that he had nearly shot me that night because I, I thought one of my cats had escaped. And oh. and like I was in the backyard and then saw like what looked like eyes and they darted off into a neighbor's yard. Mm -hmm. And so I went to go look in my neighbor's yard for the cat and uh, my neighbor, different neighbor, yeah. um, saw someone, you know, going around in this other person's yard and said he he nearly shot me <laughs> oh, wow. thinking, it, thinking it was it was the per people had broken into my house who oh, wow. uh, were there rather than me mm -hmm. um but thankfully i kind of gave up on that because <laughs> i couldn't find couldn't find the cat turns out he was in the house the whole time yeah. and uh <laughs> but uh yeah that december 23rd 2013 hardest night of my life mm -hmm. it was i i've there are so few times where i've felt just kind of lost and you know not knowing which way is up not knowing what i'm doing mm. not knowing where to go and that one i know just the fact i can tell you the exact date i think <laughs> should give you an idea yeah so so how did you go through that period um so it's funny um the next morning i uh so like i said my work laptop was stolen and I'd actually promised a coworker, Hey, I'll get this, I'll get this to you tomorrow. Um, for some, I forget what it was. And I'm like, well, maybe not because I don't have a computer cause it was stolen. And so the, that whole process. Um, and then it was like, once I kind of dealt with the immediate, Hey, I don't have a, I don't have a laptop to do, even do the work I need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I sat down on one of my dog's beds in my office and just like, I needed to think I needed to, to clear my mind. And, um, I had dabbled with Buddhism in the past and read a book and done some meditating. And, um, 
decided that's what I needed to do. I needed to meditate. Oh, and okay. so um, I remember the book I had read taught some basic breathing meditation. And so I went, um, I didn't have my computer, so I went on my phone to just do like a, a search for breathing meditation. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the first instruction is, but the second one will probably be with me for the rest of my life. What's and that, that is, uh, it said to tell yourself that every living being, no matter what they've done to you, deserves to be truly happy. Mm. And here I am thinking everything that's just been going on. And in particular, a lot of it was centered around my ex-wife. And yeah. list, you know, thinking on that and like, this is someone I purportedly love. I have to want her to be happy. Mm-hmm. And something just clicked. And I, I realized it was true. I had to want her to be happy, even if that meant it wasn't with me. Mm-hmm. And so that even though I felt wronged, I found my place. I found forgiveness. Mm. And once I was able to say I forgave her, which if not that, that morning, it was, you know, a day or two. Wow. Um, and, and this is the next day after the, you're breaking. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. uh, but once I was able to say, or I forgive her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so much of that, just kind of melted off of me mm-hmm. and um, it really kind of led, I think to a, a very healthy kind of divorce relationship. You know, we're, she and I will dog sit for each other. Now we we're we're in, very, we're in a very good place with each other. Oh. And um, yeah, but so much that I, I owe to that, that next morning and meditating and just getting to a point of forgiveness. Um, you know, to say that holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting it to hurt somebody else. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, forgiveness is, is incredibly powerful. And what's the, what's the book you were talking about? Do you remember the, the name of the book, the meditation book you were talking about? It was a website I went to. I, it wasn't oh. even a book. Um, oh, do you not remember the website? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> do you not remember the name? Oh, so it's a guided meditation in your way. Or it, it was just kind of a, it was just instruction. It was just, text on a page and i was reading through it and i was like okay. tell yourself every living being no, mm-hmm. matter, what, no matter what they've done he deserves to be truly happy mm, gotcha oh crap i don't want to <laughs> say that but after sitting with it for a few minutes like no this is right i have to oh boy you know it's like uh, you kind of go through that that thought process mm-hmm. i went through it pretty quickly and realized that no i if this is someone i love i have to want her i have to want her to be happy yeah, yeah and yeah. and realizing that made it a whole lot easier to be like, all right, this yeah. is what it is. And, mm. you know, yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, going back to your marriage a little bit, like, do you sure. think, you know, if you go back and I would, you have done differently. Is, is that, I'm, I'm not sure if is, is there anything you could have done differently, but have you, yeah. you go through that? Yeah. Um, I would say I think I was just a little too accommodating in my marriage Mm. Uh, and that I was always kind of putting her needs above mine. Yeah. And as a result, I wasn't feeling particularly fulfilled. And Mm. so I think that kind of led to some resentment and um, that was kind of 
where things kind of fell apart. Mm, um, yeah. So recognizing that, you know, sometimes, sometimes the best way to be a good partner to somebody is to actually take care of your own needs rather than theirs. Yeah, you need to, it's like, you know, on the airplane that people always say, oh, put, up, put your mask on first before you put your, on your, your baby, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. So I want to go back to martial a little bit. Let's do it. Right. <laughs> What's the biggest difference between you, if you've seen yourself before, you before and after like doing martial arts and something shoe? Um, I honestly, it, I feel like I'm a different person mm. and that was even before I started to transition. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, no, like I, I'm more confident. I'm healthier. Mm. I'm just, I'm happier with who I am. Mm. And I, I owe a lot of that to the dojo, you know, um, mm when I first came to dojo and I think it was my first summer. So I guess summer of 2014, mm-hmm. I ran a 5k for the first time in like tw- literally 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. It, it was summer of 2014. Cause yeah, the previous one had been in the summer of 1994 and mm-hmm. I say run, I didn't exactly run. I, I did the 5k distance there. There may have been a little bit of jogging, but I didn't run a <laughs> for f- five kilometers, yeah. but um, no, just like the motivation and the support, from the community was huge and so that, i mean that helped and then you know as you progress and and get better at things and mm-hmm. um just feel better with your your physicality and your body that that gives you a, a good sense of self-confidence and then mm-hmm. um just seeing seeing myself grow in that space mm-hmm. uh, i think really gave me a good bit of confidence mm-hmm. plus frankly teaching kids yeah um you know having those kids look up to you and call you senpai and um no sensei (laughs) well a lot of them called me sensei too (laughs) (laughs) um yeah that was that was something was uh after finally getting the black belt and like being called sensei and not having that inclination to say nope senpai Mm -hmm. you know that was that was a wonderful feeling of not having that feeling of having to correct somebody yeah um but no i i really I'm not the same person I was mm-hmm. and um, and just caring about fitness really for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd read something for, you know, I said, I'd been reading a bunch of things about trans people and mm-hmm. there's this common experience where you really just don't care about your physical body because you don't feel much of an attachment to it. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really saw myself as kind of, me my brain in a meat sack almost Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as such i really if you know i was unhealthy or whatever Mm -hmm. well you know that's that's not who i am who i am is is you know up here rather than my body yeah and so um but getting to a point where i actually was i was you know pretty happy with my health and how my body was was changing with that much exercise Mm-hmm. I, I still say like when I turned 40, I was probably in the best shape I've been in as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Getting ready for that brown belt test. I worked my butt off. Mm, yeah. Pro- I would say almost as much, if not more than, than I did for black belt, but that was also such a, a huge change. Like, Absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, sometimes I think the brown belt test might be harder than a black belt test. But yeah, talking about a black belt test, I guess I think we went through our. I think you and me you. were the first、uh, something shoe like、uh, black belt testing the, on virtually, right? Yeah, the virtual senseis. Yes, <laughs> the virtual <laughs> virtual senseis. Okay, I haven't heard that term before, but appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So. So talking about kids on the black belt test, I think、uh, we both tested. I think you got probation, right? Yeah. So I, my conversation with Rachel is that、uh, you guys actually talk about that with the kids class. Like, do you、mm -hmm. remember? Like, what did you, what did you, what did you tell the kids that you got a、uh, probation? Which, yeah. Yeah. So、um, actually, Rachel did most of the talking,、uh, okay. but kind of. Well, and so there was, you know, talking, you know, the, the Thursday before the test, it was kind of like, yep, next time you see Sensei Senpai Grant, it'll be Sensei Grant, and、mm -hmm. then having to kind of, you know, dress up for that class and put that brown belt back on. That was,、mm. that was hard.、Um, and then, but it's also kind of the, you know, eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. You you have to talk about it in some way. Yeah. And、um, thanks to Sensei Rachel for for taking that on because I don't know that I could have. Done so and well, anywhere near as good a way as she did. But、mm -hmm. she also works with kids, so it's、yeah. to be expected. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean, it's this whole idea that you know, just because we try to try to do something doesn't mean we're going to succeed.、Mm -hmm. And you know, you can try your hardest, and it still doesn't mean you're going to get the result that you were looking for.、Mm -hmm. And so、um, that was really kind of the. As I remember, that was kind of the essence of the, of the conversation. Was you know, I did, I gave it everything I could, and it didn't work out. But、mm -hmm. at the same time, it's I wasn't quitting either. You know, it's、mm -hmm. just because you get knocked down doesn't mean you know, brush yourself off and and keep on going.、Uh, that not to let not to let that setback turn into a failure.、Hmm. Ah, so you do not see it as a failure. You see it as a, just a my a temporary setback. I think maybe I did for the first couple days. Yeah, yeah,、um, <laughs> uh, yeah but no. In retrospect, and frankly,、mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, I, I wouldn't have said this at the time. But in retrospect, and now, in a lot of ways, I'm glad it happened.、Mm. Um, I think, particularly now as an instructor, it's a it was a very valuable experience. You know,、mm. um, having gone up through the ranks and not. Having any real failures like that, you know,、yeah. that I'd kind of always been able to kind of rise the challenge and and try something and and succeed at it,、mm -hmm. you know.、Uh, I don't think you know all of my future students will be quite so successful. And now to have that ex that now I had that experience, so I can relate to a, a struggling student.、Mm -hmm. um, I think it was was really valuable.、Mm. And you know, <laughs> last year was such. A crazy year,、yeah. and and with our with our black belt test and the way that all worked out,、mm -hmm. you know, I I see myself, you know, ten years down the line at training camp and someone's complaining about their black belt test. Like, you want to complain about a black black belt test? Let me tell you something, you know, <laughs> and just just the story of of how that all happened,、mm -hmm. um, but still being able to, to tie that belt on before the end of 2020,、mm -hmm. you know, I I felt like I 
I may have had a setback, but I still beat 2020 in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and it, in a lot of ways, it just, the probation just made the story better. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You, you still got a black belt at the end of 2020, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so it's like, I think Sensei Gordon said to you in, in your podcast last week, talking about, um, what was it? Their, their trip and like getting a flat tire or something like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's when it's, in some cases it's difficulty or, or the setbacks that make, make a story more interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. and there were plenty of those to be had last year. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Kanu, like, what's your favorite philosophy? Kanu philosophy. Oh, oh boy. All right. Well, maybe hard to choose just one. So I'll just, some of them that kind of come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I probably use the most is the was the five rees of healing, reduce, relax, reach, reevaluate, remember, mm-hmm. because um, going through all this training in kind of middle ages and not um, having been historically one of the more most physical people, mm-hmm. um, I had a lot of injuries kind mm-hmm. of coming up through the ranks, and so having that one is kind of a a reminder that you know you actually have to take a break and and give yourself time to heal. Mm-hmm. Um, was was always a good one. Um, what is it? The the ten stages of growth that actually have eleven stages. That's always kind of funny, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll laugh at that one. Although to be fair, the, the first and the eleventh are the same thing, and it's a loop. So I guess that's exactly it's ten. But um, I, I remember, and not as much a flaw. I mean, it's part of the code of ethics. Um, I remember being a two green stripe, and Sensei Mark Gowan in an effort to have a start to learn the code of ethics, like just, all right, for next week, you me- you memorize number one and have something to say about it. You memorize number two and have something to say about it. You memorize number three. And have- so I got number two, mm-hmm. um, which is what all students should be faithful to the ideals of Kung Nu and attempt to spread and develop these beliefs within the younger generation so that they too may be morally and physically fit. Wow. I was a little annoyed it's, it was the longest one, but <laughs> I memorized it. Mm-hmm. But as someone who was teaching kids at you know one green stripe um this idea of the, the next generation really kind of resonated with me and and still does and you know whether that next generation is you know kids or it's the next generation of adults in the dojo that sort of thing yeah. um that idea of kind of frankly paying it forward you know mm-hmm. i feel i feel i've been given an amazing gift mm-hmm. and the best way i can repay that gift is to pass it on to others Mm. Um, and so that's, that's part of why I'm so passionate about teaching is I feel like I'm repaying a gift I was given. Mm. Nice. Nice. That's great. That's great. So, um, you're talking about, uh, Oh, and one more, sorry, just one more on the philosophy three O's I think is, well, no, I mean, I, I think it unifies us all. And I think when I first heard about training camp, and you know just how amazing everyone is and it's like it can't be like that it can't be that good you know we have a really cool group here but i can't imagine you know 500 people all being that that close and friendly and it was and i really think kind of that whole three o's philosophy concept is so central to that and um i know sensei rick taught it to me on my first class Mm -hmm. um when i'm dealing with white belts i make sure you know if if i'm in the, in the past, when I've helped teach, you know, brand new white belts, I always made sure that was something I talked about, like on a first class, because I, I think it is so essential to really who we are and what differentiates us as a style. 
is this idea of of being open and welcoming and caring and yeah. One of the questions you had was um, if I could make a philosophy. Yeah. Um, I had I, th- I had a pretty good one. I felt. All right. Um, and it was the. Yeah, go ahead. So and it's a very Sung Ming Chu one. It's the uh, five F's of part uh, five F's of partying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So food uh-huh. can't have a party without food. Yeah. Fun uh-huh. makes sense. Friends. Uh, getting effed up. <laughs> All right. And then, as a as a nod to Grandmaster Quinn, you need more food. <laughs> of course. All right. But that's all like a very Sung Ming Shu um, mm-hmm. philosophy. All right. That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. All right. Last few questions. I'll say last yeah. three questions. Um, okay. So we talk about the sad moment of your life, right? Saddest moment. What about the happiest moment of your life? Uh, I'll, the first thing that comes to mind is getting that black belt, to be totally honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was something I'd been working for, for, for a number of years. I, I didn't think, I didn't even think black belt was possible until about my two brown test. Mm-hmm. And that was the point where it's like, really? Can I do this? I mean, I, it, was a very intimidating future I was, I was looking at, but I'm like, if I, you know, there's that whole saying, you know, uh, what difference between a black belt and a white belt is, um, or no, a black belt is just a white belt who didn't quit. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, maybe if, you know, if I stick around long enough, maybe I can do this mm. and then kind of really committing to that. But, you know, like I was saying about the whole idea of really kind of being invested in my mind and not as much my body. Yeah. I never, I never thought I would accomplish anything particularly like physically, mm-hmm. um, you know, academic achievements, those sorts of things. I almost expected to be able to do that, that sort of thing, but mm-hmm. to be able to achieve something like getting a black belt mm-hmm. when I never really expected to be, you know, to be able to, to have any sort of physical accomplishments mm-hmm. that in a lot of ways just meant so much more because I never thought I was capable of it until, you know, maybe a few years before I did Mm. Um, that made that all the better. Mm. And then also just kind of being around so many friends and people who had supported me through the years and had really had believed in me and to be able to finally, to be able to finally do that. And Mm. yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. It was a heavy day. <laughs> it really was. Well, thinking thinking back about Moshe and I, you you say that you never talk about that. You, it's possible for you. So, what what's the hardest thing about Moshe for you? Um, well, I'd say at first it was motivation, but I think that was once. <laughs> Once the dojo stuck its, the dojo stuck its teeth in me, motivation yeah. wasn't a problem. Um, as you, yeah. <laughs> uh, as I as I kind of progressed through the ranks, um, patience was difficult. You know, you always kind of pushing for that next rank. I want to I want to work on new things. I want to drive myself. I, you know, that was um, that was a challenge. And then um, when I got up to brown belt, um, and I think that this maybe what my final answer is um and that is 
not overdoing it, you know, (laughs) that, um, you know, oh, exercise is a good thing. Well, more exercise must be more of a good thing. No, you can do too much. And um, that's something that, you know, particularly as I was kind of in the black stripes and frankly, my body was just, I won't say falling apart, but Mm. going that hard for that long, Mm -hmm. um, I really kind of, I peaked about January of 2020 and the rest of the year was just kind of like, how do I hold this together without it just all falling apart and Mm -hmm. this, this test and everything kind of just going by the wayside because I'm not, um, I can't. Yeah. 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 Balance need to balance resting and working working hard. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I think that's something honestly we could do a better job of teaching as well. Um, is, you know, great to see you when you're here, but I don't want to see you in the dojo every day (laughs) Um, because you need to take care of yourself. And it's really hard to do if you're, if you're not resting your body. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. If you rest more, you can get stronger too. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It gives your muscles a chance to to rebuild. Whereas if you're always tearing them down. Mm -hmm. Um, Cool. Last two questions. This one, this one, you might have answered it already, but so who was the most influential person in your life? Um, well, I mean, the obvious answer is your parents, but mm-hmm. I think that those are going to be the most influential people for, for most of us. Right. I mean, how, how do your parents not have a huge influence on you? Yeah. Um, so that feels almost like a cop out. So I almost want to say somebody besides my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, um, I think my best friend, um, he and I, what I moved to Atlanta in April of 1991. Mm-hmm. And I think that first week I was here in Atlanta, I was already staying the night at my, what is now my best friend's place. Oh, nice. um, yeah. I've known him 30 years oh. and uh, just, and we weren't even, it wasn't, I would say it wasn't until college that we really got to be as close as we are now yeah, or even remotely as close as we are now, but no, like just a lot of shared interests, um, really good, just kind of friend companion. I can, tell him anything and um he's also taught me a lot he's just he's a wonderful caring good person Mm -hmm. um and uh that kind of that's had an influence on me and uh just kind of uh, yeah someone someone to kind of model good behavior and yeah. and to to be that way with as well yeah nice cool all right um so actually you mentioned your parents right so your mom i think i did not get a lot from your mom but i think you mentioned that you were very close to your mom right so in what ways did she influence uh, you i guess yeah uh i mean a lot um she was she was tough as nails um uh-huh. She had polio when she was a kid and recovered from it with next to no effects. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there was a time, I think this was like in the sixties. I think she was living. I want to say it was Cheyenne, Wyoming, mm-hmm. um, somewhere in Wyoming. I'm almost positive. I think it was Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this was when her husband, so her husband was in the air force and was in the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this was before 
during after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was working as a bank teller. Mm-hmm. And it was like one of the busiest days of the year. And, you know, line out the door. And eventually someone comes up to her her window or whatever and hands a note. It's like, this is a robbery. Give, this is a robbery. Give me all your money. Oh, wow. And my mom, in true fashion to what she would, she's like, not today. We're too busy. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> and he left. Really? <laughs> yep. Oh, wow. That's, whoa, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's an awesome story. <laughs> yeah. She was an incredibly strong woman. And um, I want to say she didn't, ra- she didn't raise me herself, but there were more nights than not where it was just the two of us. And so, um, you know, I think I get my loving of cooking from her. Um, I think her her sense of humor was was wonderful, mm-hmm. and I think I think I get get that from her as well. Mm-hmm. Um, no, just yeah, she and I were very close. She was a very very good person, caring, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I miss her. Yeah, what's the what's your what's the favorite dish that she made for you? Uh hmm. Probably her oysters Rockefeller. A what? Uh, oysters Rockefeller. So it's a it's a cooked mm-hmm. oyster dish rather than a, you know now I eat oysters almost entirely raw. But then this was the only thing. But it was uh, she and my dad would travel to Mexico a good bit, and there was a handful of restaurants that would do oysters Rockefeller, but none of them were anywhere near as good as hers. Mm-hmm. So she'd kind of like taken bits and pieces from different recipes and what she liked and what and just made a version that I've never had a one that could come close to matching hers mm. um and i know the recipe i haven't been able to make it i should um she would actually this is kind of strange um she wouldn't shuck the oysters she would just get like the the pre-shucked oysters in like plastic container mm-hmm. and then but the the dish is served on the shell mm-hmm. and so we had these oyster shells that we had would use for this dish and then they would after we would finish eating them or whatever they would sit and soak in water for you know several days to just uh the dish used a lot of cheese so like melted cheese on an oyster shell not exactly the easiest thing to get off mm-hmm. and so um we would uh, she would soak the soak these shells and then have to clean them or whatever and so because i don't have any oyster shells i haven't been able to make the dish but i also during covid last year mm-hmm. learned to shuck oysters so um uh-huh. now that i know how to do that mm-hmm. uh, i actually feel like I could actually make this recipe. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> takes a little preparation, but uh, it's it's absolutely delicious. All right. It's called Oyster Rockefeller. Yes. Why is, why is there Rockefeller in there? No idea. So, okay, okay. Nice. Okay. Maybe, right. maybe just because it's thought to be like, you know, what was the Rockefeller family were, were millionaires back in the 20s or whatever. So I think maybe it's meant to be extra- extravagant or rich or something like that. That's okay. my guess, but no, I don't know what the actual connection is with the name. That's awesome. That's awesome. I need to I need to look up look it up too, man. And then next time you make it, I'll come over and eat it. Try it. There you <laughs> go. Yeah. So um last question. If yeah. you could and of course I think you probably know this one already. If you can put a word or message outside a dojo window for people driving by, what would it be? Huh. Um, I think maybe compassion. Compassion. Okay. I think 
that, you know, what I think Osensei called Kung Nu the art of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, that, actually. oh yeah, yeah. I I know that I know I've seen that somewhere. I think that was Osensei who said that. Oh. Um, but no, I think, frankly, um, particularly like in this day and age, that we're a little disconnected from each other and particularly those that we don't always necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. And I think having a little more care for other people and particularly those who we don't agree with um, mm-hmm. is something that this world needs a little more of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so having compassion for, for each other, I think mm-hmm. is something that it's a message I would want, I would want to get across. 